Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. You're welcome to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Andy Johnston. Coming up on today's programme, Brexit was certainly back in the news this week in the aftermath of the Northern Ireland elections as Boris Johnson and his government once again threatened to abandon the Northern Ireland Protocol. But today we're going to look at a lesser known Brexit Freedom Bill, which was actually included in the Queen's speech this week. And I'm going to talk to an expert from London about what it means for UK business and business here in Ireland. And as you may have noticed, opinion polls and market research are becoming more and more prevalent in our news cycle. But do the polls always get it right? And are big business just using market research to shape your thinking? I'll be joined by one of Ireland's leading polling companies, the Red Sea, to find out more about how those polls are conducted. And the Sunday Times journalist Stephen O'Brien, who's been watching the changing landscape for research and opinion polls for many years. And finally, financial sanctions as a tool of war are nothing new. We know they've been used in the US on many occasions, but they've never been used in such a concerted and coordinated way as they have in targeting the US for their invasion of Ukraine. I'll be joined from Washington by James Polity of the Financial Times to discuss a big investigation by that newspaper into the recent sanctions and how for the first time financial sanctions have been crafted with financial institutions and by multiple international leaders. You can get in contact with us by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at StockNT. But first up today, uh, Boris Johnson was at it again this week as he reignited his threat to unilaterally abandon some of the Northern Ireland Protocol, uh, a protocol which he himself negotiated and he received uh, advice from his own Attorney General to say that they were perfectly entitled to progress down that road if they wished to. Um, the Northern Ireland Protocol, interestingly, did not feature in the Queen's speech this week, but what did feature was a lesser known bill that the government promised last year, and it's called the Brexit Freedom Bill. Joining me now from London is Linda Gibson, who's Head of Regulatory Change at BN Mellon Pershing. Linda, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. Good morning, uh, Mandy, and thank you for inviting me along. Now, Linda, can you just take us back and remind us the intent of the Brexit Freedom Bill, please? So it really forms part of the UK government's uh, broader plan to, to cut red tape. They, they said uh, they wanted to cut a billion in red tape. Um, and that got some um, eye-catching headlines at the time. Um, but in truth, that it's, it's going to be hard to... They cannot remove all regulation. Um, but So they are focusing on setting high standards at home and globally and really positioning uh, the UK um, as the best regulated economy in the world. Um, but the Brexit Freedoms Bill, it has a very wide remit, um, and it goes far wider than financial services, which is, is my kind of area. It covers climate, agriculture, data, uh, transport, and public health. So financial services is just part of it. Um, and so the Brexit Freedoms Bill was uh, published in the Queen's speech this week. But the, the piece of it that's really relevant uh, for financial services is the Financial Services and Markets Bill. And that was also part of the Queen's speech. Um, so perhaps, you know, if, if 
I can tell you a little bit of, about yeah, that. Yes, yeah, sir. Might so, be helpful. Sure, Linda. We we'll get into the financial services aspect of it in a moment and talk what that might mean for Irish businesses and indeed for for UK businesses. But um, I just want to get a sense of what this broader bill is. So essentially, it's looking or auditing all of the existing regulatory framework that exists in the UK and sort of cherry picking the pieces from the EU rules that it wants to keep. Is is that a fair assumption? Yeah, I think that, you know, the UK's departure from the EU provides a, a once-in-a-generation opportunity to, to review regulation in all areas that were previously subject to EU law. Um, and this is what we see the UK now starting to define the agenda. Um, and it is complicated because the, the, the legislation um, that's been inherited uh, retains you. EU law, in the jargon, can only be changed if it's if Parliament passes new laws. And, and Linda, um, so what, the, the Brexit. Linda, sorry. Well, what happens in the interim while they're conducting this audit and seeing what? How does the uh, legislation and the regulatory framework work? Do they just continue to operate as normal, or is there a vacuum there that that businesses are finding? Well, the the UK um, onshored the EU law, so it's it's working in practice at the moment. This is really finessing the pieces um, that they, they want to make reforms on. The firms can continue to operate uh, at Brexit. We know the firms lost their uh, the MIFID services passport. So that really, the restrictions are already in place, but the, the legislation has, has kind of patched over to allow firms to continue to operate, for consumers to continue to receive services. Um, but recognising that um, EU and UK firms are, are diverging now and that will continue on, on both sides. So Linda, just turning to your own area of expertise, we've heard much about the UK trying now to, to present itself as a global financial hub. Um, could this audit of legislation result in a loosening of financial regulations uh, and make ultimately the UK a bit more competitive in the world? That, that's certainly the the um, intention, um, and they have a large book of work um, to, to be working on uh, in terms of, of how to, to approach this and the focus. So we've seen already legis- uh, not legislation, sorry, consultations on the wholesale market side in the EU. They want to really uh, position the UK. Um, and seek more investment and capital markets um, interaction. So that's a key area of, of focus to start with. Um, and then there, there are also initiatives around consumer duties, but the firms looking after their consumers and being fairer in uh, a kind of uh, what's what their interactions are. But initially, the focus is on the wholesale market. And Linda. Is there likely to be implications for Irish business who might see the effect of these changes? And when uh, is that likely to happen? Well, in Ireland, the um, local regulator, the Central Bank of Ireland, its regulatory framework tends to be aligned with the UK on on initiatives as they come through. And this positions UK firms well to co-locate in Ireland. And it also benefits our Irish clients um, we we ha- are established in, in Dublin as well as London and our, we see that our Irish clients can leverage work undertaken in the UK. 
Linda, in your work, and, and as you say, you're based in London and in Dublin, do you see that there's any uptick in UK firms locating in Ireland or indeed elsewhere because of Brexit? We, we do. Um, as I mentioned, we're already established um, in Ireland, but we've seen a number of clients um, looking to co-locate um, recognising that they no longer they no longer have the submitted services passport, they're looking to, to co-locate into EU and Dublin um, has, has is being seen as a, a favourite choice because of the you know the same language, the the similarity in an approach to regulation, and as I say that allows firms to kind of leverage of some of the work that they've undertaken already and we can support them in terms of what we're seeing across the EU and the UK. If you're just joining us, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock and I'm talking to Linda Gibson about the Brexit Freedom Bill. Just moving back to the bill itself, the Brexit Freedom Bill, which we're, we're discussing. Um, if the UK government is to proceed and abandon some of the EU laws, is there any danger that individuals and indeed businesses could suffer because they're losing a lot of rights that they have formerly held under EU law? I think in terms of the rights being lost, it is really around the access to the markets and that already happened um, with Brexit, with UK firms no longer being able to serve EU investors and vice versa. So what we're seeing now is really around strengthening the UK's position um, and and that will not come at the harm to consumers uh, because that is certainly within the UK regulators' remit to protect consumers. From the Irish perspective, um, they will still be part of the EU. Um, ESMA, the European regulator, has in some ways a tougher job because it has to reach uh, a conclusion across all the EU 27 states. But again, it's always going to be with the aim of protecting investors and enhancing the markets. I think what the the, the challenges is for firms um, in monitoring the changes where they are located both across the EU and the UK is really trying to um, get a sense of the regulatory divergence, what pieces are mm. moving and the timing of the reviews. It, it is common it, themes across the EU and the UK, but it's about the timing and really spotting the differences. It is a quite a complex endeavour um, to audit the EU legislation and to, to find the new framework. Um, they do have uh, quite an interesting consultation process built into this for the public, don't they? Yes, yes. Um, it's for for firms and for consumers, there's always public consultation on um, the, the direction of change. It will quite often start with a discussion paper. If it's a totally new area, they will discuss the aims. That's followed by consultation and then the results in a policy statement where we see the new rules. Unfortunately, um, the EU consultation you know, can take a long time to come through to fruition, and we saw that with the um, MIFID Quick Fix Directive, which was implemented in February of this year, but was meant to be a response to, to COVID that started um, outbreaking, as we know, in uh, March 2020. So that was almost two years until the, you know, it was good aims and it was help to, to help firms reduce the 
um, the load and the, the paperwork that they had to issue to consumers. There was a move to electronic delivery. And that was great, but it took two years to come into fruition and, until it was actually implemented in, in February 2022. So that's one of the challenges that the UK wants to move away from and hopefully be more nimble in its rulemaking. Okay, Linda, so can you just give us some sense of the timetable of this Brexit Freedom Bill? Uh, where will it progress from here? Um, it will hopefully be laid before Parliament as soon as June, July this year. And from that, we'll get the detail um, as to exactly what they want and the timetable. Uh, we're not expecting any changes to come into fruition this year, uh, but certainly the, the government's looking to move ahead. So I think for 2023, we'll have a book of work um, and the expectations will be clearer. OK, well, as you say, it, it's probably going to take quite some time to progress, but there is a consultation process that um, Irish businesses as well would be well advised to look out for. Uh, for now, uh, we'll have to leave it there. This uh, Brexit legislation, though, is billed as a once in a generation opportunity uh, by the British government. I'm a tad suspicious about the title that it might be also created to speak to its own base. But for now, we leave it there. That was Linda Gibson, Head of Regulatory Change at BN. And Melon Pershing. Linda, thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you, Mandy. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Coming up next, opinion polls and market research are increasingly dominating our news cycle. But do they always get it right? And are they becoming a propaganda tool for big business interest? We'll find out after the break. You welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. Now, opinion polls have been around for a very long time, as has market research. This week uh, on the radio, I counted seven different market research papers, everything from banks, housing platforms, universities. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. But I wanted to uh, take this opportunity to explore what goes on behind the scenes at polling companies and how market research is being used in the modern world to condition us as consumers and voters. And to do that, I'm joined now by Richard Colwell, who is is CEO of Red Sea Research and also Stephen O'Brien, who is the political editor of The Sunday Times. You're both very welcome. Thanks for joining me today. Hello. Nice Thanks, to be Mandy. Richard, I might start with you, if I can, on the opinion polls piece, and we'll get to market research in a moment, but opinion polls are one of my favourite things, and I, sus- I suspect they're one of Stephen's as well. I like nothing better than sitting down with pages and pages of statistics to go through. Um, but for our listeners, can you just give us an idea of... Um, how opinion polls are conducted now and who commissions them? Um, well, polls generally commissioned, the ones that most people see anyway, are commissioned by um, publications, be that newspapers, radio, um, TV, a- any of those sources would be the people to that generally pay for them. Um, and they're conducted differently. I mean, it, it does depend on the polling agency and how they do them. What, what every polling company is trying to do effectively is to use a sample of people to tell us what the whole population thinks. And the only way you can do that is to make sure that the sample of people that you talk to is as closely representing the whole population. And if you do that really well, then your poll should be right. And if you don't, then it generally isn't. But how you do it then is very different. Like some ours, for instance, at Red Sea are conducted online. Now it used to be conducted by phone. Uh, other companies still do them face to face, knocking on people's doors. Um, so it's very differently. But that the ultimate aim behind it is the same, which is to try and get a random representative 
sample of the population, the right number of men, the right number of women, the right number of young people, older people, so that it represents everyone out there. Uh, and in doing it that way, we can ask people what they think, and that should represent what everyone in the population thinks. Um, much in the same way as you don't need to eat a whole cake to know what it tastes like, you can take a slice of that cake, and as long as it has all the same ingredients of the rest of the cake in it, it you should know what it what it tastes like. Stephen, if I could turn to you for a second, uh, just taking that um, business model into consideration and looking at opinion polls and how accurate they have been politically, not just in an Irish sense, but internationally. They're not terribly accurate in recent years. I'm thinking of the US, Brexit and even the the election here. Do you think that um, they're becoming less important in the political consideration or do you think it's the same as it ever was? Well, I think uh, as long as there is a doubt over their accuracy or if if doubts over their accuracy persist or increase, they will uh, they will struggle to be relevant. Uh, I think we have a much better record here in Ireland uh, of, of, of the polls getting closer to the mark. I mean, you mentioned Brexit. Uh, I was looking up, uh, the, 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 there were seven polls across mainstream newspapers and um, publications in Britain in June of 2016. And all seven in that month when, when people voted on Brexit gave Remain a narrow win. Mm. Uh, well, as we know, the outcome was was, was, was quite the opposite. Um but, uh, you know, it depends on, I guess, like, there are, so, there are now so many different methods of, of polling as well, you know, living in, in, in parallel with each other. And that further complicates it. You've got um, online polling, some of which is, is, is remarkably accurate and some, some of which less so. You've got telephone polling and you've got face-to-face, door-to-door uh, which, you know, um, the, the, the Sunday Times behaviour and attitudes go door to door. So do Ipsos, MRBI for the Irish Times, Richard's, Richard's Red Sea, uh, our, our online polling. Um, and uh, like in, in the north, where we most recently had uh, the assembly elections, uh, you've got Lucid Talk, uh, who have, who, who I noticed on their website, they boast that they were within 1% of the results of the uh 2017 assembly election, the 2019 Westminster election. Uh, I think their poll in um, April, the la- their last poll in the assembly election was um, they were quite close to the to the the, Shishin, to the the very close to the DUP vote, quite close to the Sinn Fein vote, but they were a bit out on some of the others. Um, but uh, for example, the we had the um, the Inst- Institute of Irish Studies and, and, and Liverpool at Liverpool University they did a poll in that final week, which had alliance almost neck and neck with the DUP. Now, as it as it turned out, uh, the DUP were, I think, almost eight points better than alliance on the day, even though alliance had a great day out. Um, and lucid talk uh, better reflected that result than um, than the the Liverpool University one. So. It depends on the on the you know what what data are you are you putting in to, to what to to to, 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 to the results you're getting out, um, and then of course you've you've, you've only, people don't always tell pollsters mm. truth, uh, and there are various ways that they calibrate for that. I mean you've you have heard of the the, the phenomenon of shy Tories, um, while while people might be quite happy to boast their loyalty to to Boris Johnson, or at least they might have done so to, a year ago. They might be quite so happy to boast it today. Um, but there was a time when it was, uh, you know, when a lot of people were voting Tory, but weren't very happy to let it be known. So that phenomenon, uh, you know, depressed the Tory vote.
in, in many opinion polls mm. and a much bigger vote came out on on on, um, on, on polling day. And it, it, we've seen it here. There was a shy Fianna Fáil vote in the wake of the fiscal crash when, when a lot of people uh, were... Well, not a lot of people because Fianna Fáil's vote did collapse. But as it began to recover... Uh, a lot of people who were considering voting for them again weren't like weren't too keen to admit to the pollsters that that's what they were doing. So the Fianna Fáil vote yeah. is, is sometimes hard to catch. Yeah, I come back to 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 you, Richard. Now, if I might, just on that point that Stephen was making about a shy voter. Um, I recall back in the two thousand and seven election campaign, I was director of communications, and there was a big five point swing on a Sunday night, and I think it made people in in the in the campaign more happy than the actual election result because we were so relieved to see an opinion poll but opinion polls back then really mattered now people will be very familiar with your opinion polls in the Sunday business polls which have been happening every month for how many years now uh, since about 2004, I think. Yeah, yeah, and the great thing that they've been able to do is show the trajectory over a period of time. Um, do you find that that consistency um, in, a, in a poll uh, provides the poll itself with a bit more credibility? Well, the important thing with any market research and polling is part of this is looking at trends and how trends are unfolding over the longer term. And I think sometimes people do get a bit caught up about one poll's difference to the last poll and, oh, it's all within margin of error. Because it's um, about trajectory. Isn't it's it? really yeah. about the, the long term, you know, what's happening. And, you know, for instance, uh, since the last election or even just before the last election, you know, the Sinn Féin vote has been increasing. It increased rapidly in the in the lead up to that election and it has been growing since then. And there's a clear trend going on there, you know, and that's what's actually more interesting maybe than just looking at the result from one poll to the next. It gives you a lot more information and helps you understand, you know, is someone static? Are they stuck in the mud or is there some movement there over the longer term? If you've just joined us, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnson. And we're talking to Richard Colwell of Red Sea and Stephen O'Brien from The Sunday Times. One other thing I wanted to ask you about, Richard, was what is the percentage now of your business when you look at opinion polls versus research? So actually, uh, opinion polling is only 5% wow. of what we do as a business. So the majority of the work we do is is commercial. It's for commercial clients. It's for brands. Uh, and companies f- to help them understand how they can grow their business, grow their brand, uh, give better customer service, uh, and all that side of the research industry is really where most of our business is. It's using the same principles as opinion polling. Uh, and actually, the only thing about opinion polling that is different is it's very rare in business market research for you to ever find out whether you were right or not because there's, there's no, no there's no there's no the election end. at the end. But but there is product and there are consumer driven uh, research. Yeah. Stephen, is that something you find has become more prolific uh, as a journalist? You're seeing more of this research across your desk every day. You see, you see it come into your email. I don't know. There's not too much of it um, gets into our newspaper, uh, but there are, you know, different ends of the market. There are, you know, companies are clever about, um, you know, how they capture the, a buzz around their new product, and certainly, you know, in, in, in a lot of the um, the red top press would, would would carry a lot more of that kind of uh, slightly frothy, if you like. Uh, um, snapshots of, of consumer trends um, but uh, yeah it, it, it's it's you know companies are, 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 are trying to think outside the box and trying to think of, uh, of ways of getting uh, getting 
publicity outside uh, the, the paid advertising, if you like. Yeah, and I suppose, Richard, that's what I'm trying to get at. Are we getting to a situation where companies are generating their own data, their own narrative that suits them, and that's kind of bypassing the press and, and analysis of the press and going straight to consumers? Um, look, I think... I think companies do use market research to um, promote products and so on. They ask people questions that they use in, in press releases. But to be honest with you, that, again, is probably only another 5 or 10% of what we do. What, what companies really use research to do is to understand and talk to consumers. And if you're not understanding and talking to consumers, how can you possibly know what's the best product to do, what's the best way to develop your product, the, how to improve your service. That's actually where most of the money that companies are spending is going, not not on the on, on the, froth, the frothy stuff, uh, which ends up in the papers, you know, and, and is obviously popular for them because it's of interest. Like the reason why that ends up in the papers is because people want to read about those types of things that everyone else likes their tea dark or, mm. or light or whatever it might be. You know, it's it's interesting and it's fun, you know, and that's, that's why, you know, companies would use that but the reality is you know i don't know if you saw um last week there was a big article about the fact that the bbc is um spending 50 million you know on research over the next over the next three years and that that's a kind of idea of like what they need that research to go and understand what listeners want how they provide the best programming how and, to and de- you, how newspapers to and the media are doing that themselves absolutely uh, to understand absolutely, their, their own yeah. consumers yeah and yeah. um, Stephen, just back to you for a second on that uh, matter. Just you know, we all, we've all seen over recent years in particular that um, there's a lot of funding issues within media. And, you know, is this a way of maybe providing more content uh, for journalists to use? I mean, you called it frothy. Richard uh, w- would contest that. It, it's all valuable consumer interest related news because it's 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 relevant and it's it's actually asking the questions but is it actually providing the media with some content that it mightn't get if it were not for this type of research sure um yeah i think that particularly with the with the growth of online journalism and the move to journalism online uh, the beast is insatiable so the, the you know there's always uh, the, 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 there's always content needed uh, to update your, your your pages to 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 bring something new to the readers. Uh, so so that option and that temptation is always there. I mean, people, newspapers and media organisations need to satisfy themselves. You know, just because something somebody describes it as a poll, you know, there's a there's a difference between a poll carried out by Red Sea and a poll carried out by, you know. Whatever Acme Acme polls, you know, we don't know who they are. Uh, we don't know what the methodology is. So I mean, a, the media organisations have a responsibility to be sure that the content that's been offered to them is, is genuine and legitimate. And, and if, if somebody's describing it as a poll, it, it has to have you know a sample size. Uh, it has to have uh, demographic balances that the, that the the, the recognisable polling companies all build into their systems. And I have to say there is that robustness behind most of the polling that's done here in Ireland which gives it a credibility. I see you nodding um, there Richard. Yeah there is but it is really important point actually because there is more and more of kind of you know people doing their own polls on Twitter or whatever else and, and giving it some and credence using that, because yeah. it has you know 20,000 people answered their poll and isn't this amazing but if it's 20,000 people who are all the same type of people who live in a certain part of the country then it does it's not really relevant you know you have to to control that sample the quality is so important in terms of what you're getting out of it and I 100% agree about you know that there is a 
there is a an onus on journalists, you know, to actually check the the credibility of the of the stuff that's being sent to them. I mean, we we're part of an organisation called AIMRO, which represents all of the serious market research companies in Ireland, and and actually on the AIMRO website, there's ten questions journalists should ask or anyone should ask about a poll before they believe the results or take them seriously. Yeah, and, and I think and that's that's important. exactly the point I was trying to get to is I think there needs to be more transparency about who's commissioned the report um, and what the sample size is and not just kind of use it as a given uh, without fact checking before. I think there's a lot more of that coming into the news cycle that maybe before wouldn't have gotten through. I, th- I think you're right. And I think this it almost goes back to, you know, a lot of exercises like like yourselves, you know, who do fact checking exercises on, on pieces that are out there. Um, but you know, it, it's really important in polling as well that, you know, just because someone says, oh, X percent of people say this, you know, is that true? Is it, be, is it a reliable company that's done that research and have they done it properly? Stephen, we leave the final word on this to you. I just want to go back to politics for a moment. Um, are politicians using this behind the scenes more than they have before? Um, is there any sense that they've uh, embraced this culture of market research themselves? Oh, very much so. Uh, we, we, we know that all the, um, the political parties uh, use various blends of, of, of quantitative and qualitative, uh, you know, uh, research. Like the, the, the focus groups are, are a popular tool. Um, and uh, I think, you know, I know Sinn Féin have used some uh, commercial polling, but I think they also have their own panels that they, 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 they had focus groups. I know when they had the in, in the Dublin Midwest by-election when there were four by-elections before the last general election, so we're talking about the autumn of 2019, uh, there were, they had they had panels, like focus group panels where they would run local issues and local, local constituencies be, be past a sample group of people. Um, and, and, you know, the Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael certainly use um, polling and market research, and I think Fianna Fáil has has used their own kind of blended work. Some of some of they they do some of their own polling, uh, uh, blended with some commercial polling. So um, of course there there this I think back to, to tales past. There was one famous political figure, a celebrated political beast in times gone past, who was known to uh, convince certain candidates that um, maybe it was time for them to uh, move on and uh, let a younger uh, colleague uh, take up the the, the colours by producing producing research that showed their seat was in danger, but I'm not too sure if the uh, of the the the, the um, provenance uh, of 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 the, or the the authenticity of some of the research that was used well, uh, to convince the elder statesmen to move on. Well, God forbid there'd be that type of chicanery going on in the background of politics. Uh, for now, we'll have to leave it there. That's Richard Cobble of Red Sea and Stephen O'Brien from the Sunday Times. Thank you both very much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. After the break, we hear from Washington correspondent of the Financial Times about how financial warfare against Russia has been coordinated by big business and governments all over the world. Welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, a new era of war is upon the world as the weaponization of currencies, energy and finance are mobilised on a global scale. But does financial warfare work? I'm joined now from Washington by James Politi of the Financial Times to discuss these issues. James is the co-author on a recent deep dive into the topic for the Financial Times. James, you're very welcome to News Talk. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. James, now it's 
a truly extraordinary coordination of international sanctions that we've seen over recent months. Just a few months ago, any of these developments would have seemed exceptional. Um, can you just start us off at the beginning where planning started uh, for the type of financial sanctions which we now classify as financial warfare? Um, well, um, planning really started in uh, early November. Um, at that point, sort of US and Western intelligence um, had started to pick up um, the sort of buildup of Russian troops along the Ukrainian border. And um, contingency planning uh, began for a possible invasion, even though many governments um, didn't believe that Vladimir Putin would follow through with the attack, especially to the extent that he actually did. And there was some skepticism and uncertainty about his intentions. But nevertheless, um, President Biden instructed Secretary Yellen, the Secretary of the Treasury here, uh, to begin sort of talks with allies about contingency planning, really, um, in terms of what could be done um, to isolate and punish Russia economically if they went ahead uh, with an invasion. And in that interim period, also to potentially uh, try to send enough clear warning signs to Russia uh, that might serve as a deterrent to an invasion. Now, the, the deterrence part of the, um, of the sort of mission uh, didn't, didn't uh, work um, as hoped for, but the West certainly did sort of follow through um, on its plans the moment uh, Russian tanks started to roll into Ukraine. And as you say there, the US was quite forthcoming with their intelligence on um, pre-war activity. But reading the piece that you wrote, there was a relatively small number of people uh, pulling this all together at a global scale. Can you just talk us through who the key political drivers are of this tactic? There was um, quite a lot of coordination among sort of Western leaders. So it was sort of the inner circle, I would say, of the G7 leaders and a sort of, you know, the EU as well was sort of critical to the effort. And within that um, group, I would say that um, some of the key figures um, were, of course, uh, kind of Secretary Yellen on the US side, but also uh, some of her kind of lieutenants, Wally Adeyemo, the Deputy uh, Secretary, Dalip Singh, who was at the National Security Council. And on the European side, um, Italian Prime Minister Mario Draghi played a very big role, um, as did um, Ursula von der Leyen, the European Commission president, and even, um, say, Christian Freeland, who's the Deputy Prime Minister of Canada um, and is of uh, Ukrainian uh, uh, descent, you know, was also heavily involved in in kind of uh, crafting crafting the sanctions. Yeah, that US-EU alliance um, on the financial warfare is a very interesting dynamic given how critical the EU has been of the dominance of the US economy. Um, do you find that um, just the gravity of the situation is what pulled them together? And is financial warfare now a new dynamic in, you know, in the kind of global approach to to taking on adversaries well i think that there was a there was a lot of kind of skepticism about whether the us and european countries would be able to actually coalesce and come together to deliver sort of a very um, strong sanctions package um, once russia invaded and i think some of those doubts clearly kind of dissipated because the initial reaction um, was very strong i think as you said a lot of it has, you know, did have to do with the gravity of the situation 
um, with uh, the fact that the Europeans in many ways did not expect Russia to sort of launch uh, a ground offensive of this nature in the heart of Eastern Europe in the 21st century. And there was you know, widespread outrage and, and there was a sense that even some of the uh, sort of mo most basic economic calculations um, had to be sort of um, set aside to deliver, you know, very strong punishment and a very clear signal to, to Putin. Of course, there were, there were some countries that were seen to be uh, more resistant, Germany in particular, given its kind of economic interests. Um, one thing that we heard was that on the very, you know, first or second day of the invasion, when, you know, Germany decided to uh, cancel the uh, spend the Nord Stream uh, pipeline yep. um, contract that that had a huge effect in signaling to others that they were prepared to take uh, take strong action themselves. Do you think that um, this is a more palatable option for politicians uh, going forward in terms of tactics? So it's it's not necessarily anymore about human collateral. Um, just looking at the US in particular, they've proved very proficient at getting into wars, but not very adept at getting out of them. Um, is this a more acceptable battle tactic for a public who might be wary of military invasions? I think it is becoming a more um, sort of acceptable and palatable tactic. I think there's kind of... Um, uh, uh, growing kind of intolerance of trade and economic relations between the West and kind of democracies around the world. And on the other hand, authoritarian regimes and authoritarian governments um, who are trying to kind of take advantage of global trade and economic relations, but not willing to sort of abide by some of the norms that are associated with uh, uh, with Western democracy. And I think that that's kind of one of the reasons why um, these tax tactics are becoming sort of more palatable and more acceptable. Of course, in the long run, the question is going to be, do you create um, different economic systems, less integrated economic systems down the road? And so therefore, you there's only sort of a certain amount of time that you have uh, in which you'll be able to wield these weapons before they don't really work anymore. And that's, I suppose, a natural next question is, you know, are, are they working? Are they having an effect? Well, certainly the Russian economy is, you know, con contracting, expected to contract in a massive way um, this year. It's, 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 it's an economy that's hurting. I think the, uh, the sort of financial ties between Russia and the West are kind of um, are dissipating um, and are sort of crumbling before our eyes, and it's very unclear when they'll return. So um, I think Russia, as it kind of gazes into the future, uh, will sort of have to decide whether it wants to move towards a future of sort of autarky, self-sufficiency, um, and fewer ties with the West, or whether it's sort of prepared to... Um, uh, re-engage. But on the other hand, the ruble, for instance, was um, collapsed at the beginning, but it recovered uh, much of its ground since then. The Russian economy and its sort of um, institutions are trying to adapt and manage um, the impact of the of the of the sanctions. I don't I don't think there's really much evidence that popular opinion in Russia mm -hmm. 
is shifting, uh, you know, away from, from Putin in any kind of meaningful way. And so that objective hasn't really been reached, although it's hard to tell given given the control of, of, of the information networks in Russia. Yeah, and they're not really exposed to um, a great deal of outside influence, so that may in itself not be surprising. If you're just joining us, you're listening to James Polity of the Financial Times and we're discussing financial warfare. James, this tactic is obviously not without its dangers. Um, the diplomatic route is one way of tackling uh, military warfare. There's this shift now looking at it in an entirely different way. Um, is there a sense that, though, this is untested and it may have consequences elsewhere? So, for example, what consequences could this have for the US economy itself? I think that there's some concern that there could be spillover effects, negative spillover effects on the US economy. The US economy is less exposed than the European economies to sort of punitive measures on on Russia, for instance. Um, However, um, there is some concern and there has been some concern that there could be negative spillovers on the US, especially we're in midterm election year. Um, Petrol prices are very high here and they're creating a lot of problems for the Biden administration. So um, the U.S. doesn't, you know, isn't pushing Europe to go uh, too hard, for instance, on um, curbing uh, Russian energy imports. Um, I think over the long, long term and over the longer term, the concern on the U.S. side, um, you know, might be if sort of this financial warfare were to be extended to other countries like China and India, whose kind of economic might is is in some ways um, bigger than Russia's, um, then that could really start to create a situation where the the dollar isn't used as much around the world, which would have ramifications for US business and for essentially America's kind of dominance of the global economy. But we're really not quite, we're not quite there yet. I think that the U.S. is is fairly confident at this stage that it has been able to kind of inflict some pretty severe punishment rapidly on Russia and sort of you know wield some of the heaviest sanctions it's ever wielded on a on a major economy without suffering too much of a of a of a blowback. Yeah, I think we're on uh, sanction number six here in Europe at the moment, um, but. You know, as I said at the outset, some of these would have seemed incredible uh, just a number of months ago. I just want to try and look, James, if we can, from the corporate world's perspective at this or the banking and financial institutions perspective. Will wartime strategies be part of their risk register uh, in the future uh, when they're trying to make their own business plans? Do they have to start factoring in things like financial warfare now? Well, I think they will. Um, I think um, I think they've always, in a certain sense, tried to look at geopolitical risk. Um, and I think with regards to Russia, many of them will have, in a way, underestimated the geopolitical risk associated with Russia. And those who kind of were tied very closely with Russian business and Russian finance um, surely will have been burnt by everything that's happened over the last few months. And that will be a lesson learned. And I think that the lesson, you know, to which um, it applies kind of most directly um, relates to um, uh, relates to China, really. I mean, mm-hmm. Many country, uh, you know, big companies have already been evaluating and, you know, considering 
um, their, their presence in China in light of the growing tensions between the US and China over Taiwan and trade and many other potential flashpoints. And I think they'll be looking at China and saying, okay, well, given what happened with the Russians um, and Ukraine, I think we need to be very careful about um, our, our presence in China, which in many ways is, is sort of more meaningful than it ever was with Russia. James, just one final question, if I may. The war in Ukraine is occupying all of the headlines here and it has for the last uh, number of of months. How is it playing out in the US? Are people there engaged and interested in the developments? I think it has occupied people's minds much more than maybe even, you know, one would have uh, uh, expected. I think the nature of the Russian attack um, was just kind of appalling and galling. And you do see kind of Ukrainian flags um, in, in, in solidarity in, with yeah. yeah in solidarity and not just in you know not just in Washington DC or New York but also um, kind of out in the in the heartland as well of course this week and in, in the US um, the uh, Ukraine has kind of faded from the from the headlines and it's been replaced by this um, the the leak of the draft Supreme Court ruling on abortion um, which is, is sort of dominating the the, the political, uh, talk and 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 certainly heralds kind of big changes to um, U.S. society and and U.S. U.S. politics. So that's kind of that's that's taken over for this week. But um, particularly if if there's a new escalation in Ukraine, I think um, I think it'll be back in the headlines. Soon. Well, it probably won't surprise you to know that the U.S. Uh, ruling has also occupied a lot of the headlines here in this country as well, and and we'll watch those developments with interest. Um, But for now, thank you so much, James, for your insights today. And thanks for joining us on News Talk. That's James Polity of the Financial Times. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. Now, while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're also available as a podcast first from Friday mornings on the News Talk app. We hope you find the topics interesting this week and informative. And any suggestions for future topics, please send them to takingstock at newstalk.com. My thanks to all of today's guests and to the producer of Taking Stock, John Fardy, with Jojo Cardoso on sound. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.